0: A company has hired a student from an mba college to be the future leader now their immediate assignments are meant to give them a flair of the business but they after five years when they're really required to get those strategic skills out by the time they have actually given up on those skills so it's that intellectual preservation if i may say of sorts that you need to do for the first five or six years to ensure that you still have an analytical mind uh, a strategic thinking mind, irrespective of what your immediate job role is, and keep all those frameworks and uh, you know uh, concepts very clear, because when you grow into leadership uh, positions and organization, it is that conceptual quali- quality which is going to help you in those roles. But if you have become too tactical by then, you'll have forgotten those things and not be able to apply.
1: Hey everyone, welcome to a brand new episode of Contraminds. In today's episode, we are in conversation with Sundar Madakshira. Sundar currently serves as the Chief Executive Officer of Resolve in India. Prior to this, he was the Head of Marketing at Adobe India. He specializes in brand management, thought leadership, and lead generation functions of marketing, and is considered a pioneer in data-driven operating models in India. He is also known as a prolific lecturer at India's premier business schools and enjoys listening and learning Indian classical music. So without further ado, here is our conversation with Sundar madhuk Hi
2: Sundar, thanks a lot and it's an absolute privilege to have you as a guest in the Contra Minds podcast.
0: Uh, Thanks Swami, thanks for having me here. It's an absolute pleasure. I've uh, had the opportunity to hear some of the earlier versions and I must say, it's an honor uh, to be speaking to you today.
2: Thanks Sundar and uh, I just wanted to straight away deep dive into the first uh, thing that I saw, which I think you've spoken about in many forums. Uh, Really the currency of engagement for marketing Uh, when you started to where it is today has changed. So uh, what is it that, uh, you know, has changed and what's important maybe in the next uh, decade for marketers? How do you think the currency of engagement needs to change?
0: Yeah, so thanks, um, uh, Swami. I think that question that you bring up is bringing us to the absolute core of the marketing world, which is how do you really engage with your uh, customer? How much do you know your customer, how much are you able to identify? Um, what is the medium you want to use uh, to stay engaged? You know, what is the best way to communicate and uh, in a two-way process, I think we oftentimes forget that uh, communication is a two, two-way 2 process. I think in the first marketing class that we were ever taught, I think there was a there's a picture where we said there's an input and there's an output and there's a feedback loop. So we sometimes are quite oblivious to that uh, uh, feedback loop, which I think, which is where the engagement process actually uh, sort of breaks down. Uh, if you ask me, I think the, the currency of engagement, if you are, you know, if you really look at it, has not materially changed over the years, right? Um, the customers and the brands always found a way uh, to say, okay, how how do I how do I the, for the marketer to find out how am I engaged with the customer. And for the and for the for the consumer to come back and say, look, this is what I feel about uh, a brand, which I which I truly am um, very I care a lot about and I'm loyal to, uh, or it might be also I'm not loyal to anymore and I want to walk out of the brand. Right. In both the cases, people always found um, ways in which uh, you know you can uh, you can communicate to each other. But I think what's happened is because of the fact that today we have an omni-channel uh you know way of communicating right this is this is apparently you know become very complex my view um and uh, you know putting it in a very simplistic way i would say that uh, the the way in which consumers and brands have to connect with each other uh, the engagement if the focus is clearly on the engagement i don't think it has i don't see any change uh, that has happened over the years however because there are more channels i think you will have to monitor more and see what kind of engagement are you getting right it's very important to not to get lost in the data uh, you know and uh, then say that okay some you know you can always we are all very smart we can always have a metric which uh, sounds very familiar or very easy to us for us to conquer uh, but that may not be the true reflection of uh, you know of uh, engagement at all uh, I used to always say that, you know, we have this thing called the customer uh, satisfaction score, right? On a zero to five, uh, the even without doing a survey, you can say the customer uh, satisfaction score is 3.6, right? That's because people have a tendency, uh, you know, to give everything in the median, uh, measures of uh, central tendency as they are called in statistics, because of which people give you a certain score. But I've seen that in many cases, despite... That score being what it is, the customer has walked away and said that, no, there are things that which I did not find. Right. At the same time, the customer uh, might even come back and say, has come back and say, I'm very, very loyal. Although then you can always turn around and ask, why is it that you have given only 3.6, it should have been five on five for a brand that you are willing to even, uh, you know, uh, to be absolutely loyal to. So I think if you have an understanding, we're using multifarious metrics and multifarious ways to understand whether the customer is really engaged or not. Now, and use the first cut of data that you get to only form the hypothesis. I'm a, I'm a big fan of this, saying that, okay, whatever are the first results that you get out of any kind of engagement, it could be an engagement on social media, or it could be uh, in terms of customers telling you in a qualitative survey that they really like your brand, and. You know, it could be a brand awareness, aided awareness or unaided awareness, whatever metric you want to take and which you believe is the right one for you because there can't be a universal prescription for this. A new brand will will think a lot about what is my brand awareness uh, in my target audience versus somebody else who is well-established. There are industries where people have been fighting for 2% market share uh, against their competition. Those metrics are going to be different but whatever be your metrics i think a good idea is to get use a qualitative measure to get directionally where your engagement is headed towards customers towards uh, you know from your customers use those qualitative measures and then put together a much more rigorous in depth analysis you know unilever at that time used to call it habits and attitude studies which are much more in depth understanding of how not just the relationship between your brand and the consumer but the the consumer and the category and the all the other allied categories also so if you are a person who is actually trying to sell a toothpaste you actually try and understand how that person is having an oral hygiene regime in the morning and how does it sort of pan out uh, for different personas and so on so i think we should not get lost uh, by putting some metrics and then saying whether uh, you know the customer is engaged or not unfortunately engagement is purely a product of the human mind which is very complex so one will have to get into the depth to understand what one a customer really means by saying he you know whatever he is trying to say
2: so given the fact that uh, you know uh, you are somebody who probably uh, have lived in many cities seen many cultures uh, I see you as somebody who uh, really understands people, personas, and relationship very well, and uh, has uh, your wide, uh, you know, uh, exposure to different cultures. Uh, has that helped you in this as a background? And uh, how does it? How does that help you? Uh, you know, when you are actually in the middle of such a, uh, you know, important uh, role and portfolio
0: that you have. So thanks. So I mean, thanks for bringing it up. I've been very fortunate. First of all, let me start by saying that I've been very fortunate. Uh, my father worked for the Indian Air Force, uh, which meant that all our childhood from the time that we, born, we were born till we got into uh, engineering uh, colleges, I have changed as many as 28 schools. Um, and I think, I don't know, I, I should do a more rigorous count, but I think I have lived in 80% of the Indian states. Uh, that were there now of course the number of states have gone up so uh, but at that time i think 80 percent of the states uh, we have been and uh, wherever we went i think there was uh, uh, there was always a choice and uh, of actually absorbing the culture of that place uh, trying to learn the language trying to understand uh, what is the mindset trying to understand the music which 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 is uh, very popular in those uh, places and uh, you know, in India is as diverse as you can even imagine. Every 50 kilometers, when we used to drive into the interior parts, we could say that the culture has changed. The way people interact with you uh, has changed. I think this has been of great help uh, to me uh, as such. And I think I what one trait which I picked up probably from my mother is to be able to be, you know, talk to people in their language and in the manner which uh, they would uh, like to do. So you actually, in a very short period of time, you absorb the culture of a a particular uh, uh, state or a city or a town or even a village uh, pretty fast. I think what it helped me, the way it helps me as a marketer is that, you know, when, first of all, I think you got to be genuinely interested in people. That's like a baseline. You have to be interested in talking to people. You you have to be interested in... uh, uh, you know uh, connecting with people that that inherent trait is very very important for a for a marketer because otherwise if you keep on looking at only data and uh, you know other things which which are which are f- f- from a distance you'll never get to know you know what your consumer is saying there are a lot of things which are told but the more things which are untold uh, all these years of doing market research in various circumstances has taught me this so I think uh, what the way it helps is, number one, you first of all recognize your audience is very heterogeneous. Um, and your segmentation variables, which is very important for you from a GTM when you're draw, drawing a go-to-market plan, uh, is going to be very different. So if you recognize that there is variation in in, the, in your target audience, and that can be on many very interesting axes, uh, something that you have probably not experienced or not anticipated, but if you keep your eyes and ears to the ground, I think you will observe that the, the, the market is much more complex uh, than what you think. It's much more heterogeneous than uh, what we all uh, sort of assume. So it's all, uh, it's nice to go with a high, medium, low kind of a classification as used to be, it used to be a joke those days that everything is high, medium, low. Uh, you know, you start with that. Definitely, it's a good starting point, but slowly you realize that there are many, many uh, interesting axes. Uh, to which uh, a person actually a, a market can be you know segmented. Um, for example, I recently read about um, and I had the opportunity to work with that brand as our customer was uh, with a brand an automobile brand which was segmenting on the basis of gender which is which is uh, the common thing but they had used psychographic ways of segmenting the market which meant that the primary axis of segmentation which was gender, had to be given up because they said it's about, tech, you know, a car being, you know, techno savvy. So how does it matter whether it's a man or a woman? Whereas a type, you know, uh, you know, if you look at a typical way, we would look at it. We typecast it saying it's a man of the house who is going to decide. And if it's a woman, it has got to be a small car. So it, uh, that I think that stereotype was broken by this uh, brand. So I think, um, you know, knowing so many languages, understanding the, uh, ethos, there are certain things you can express only in certain languages, uh, very well. And if you can absorb that, I think you, your ammunition available to you as a marketer about what are the multifarious ways in which you can communicate will change. And that starts with basically recognizing that people are different. People evolve again. This is the, all this is not uh, cast in stone. Uh, earlier, if you remember um, um, Swami, you would have you've seen that uh, quite a bit in your uh, career. The typical time that was being uh, the, the interval between market researches used to be anywhere between six to seven years. Maybe any brand is uh, willing to, I mean, is wanting to do that in six to seven years. I think it will be a history for that brand because things are evolving very, very fast. So it's all the more that the brand, the marketer should uh, really. Um, take cognizance of this heterogeneity, which is there, and seeing new what are those new patterns uh, which are uh, which are emerging uh, in the way people are buying things and the way people are making uh, you know making decisions. Uh, I'm I'm staying in Bangalore, and as you know, it's the called the Silicon Valley of India, and it's a home to many startups, and especially some uh, suburbs that that you go into are full of companies which are uh, startups and people who are living there also are you know coming from similar companies so their lifestyle their uh, you know risk appetite their the way they they uh, have planned out things the way they therefore make purchases are very different but remarkably the same thing i saw when i visited gurgaon recently uh, again it's a, it's a small sub, it in that sense it's a suburb of many many startups that are there so you can't now call it a north and south market It's got many other shades to it and to be able to do that um, you know just knowing that there is heterogeneity in the society really helps us
1: so Sundar I think this is a I think we are seeing great sparks and different threads on how we can take this conversation forward so let me try to pull a couple of them together and ask you a very pointed question so given that you have a huge background uh, in marketing a lot of professional and personal experiences having been at A lot of companies like Wipro and Adobe and having traveled across the country at a very young age and sort of absorbing culture and ethos, as you have discussed. And also another dimension of your career is that you're a prolific teacher, a prolific lecturer, and you and you mentor a lot of students. So with that in context, the question that I would like to ask you is, you know, if you could set up a marketing curriculum, what would it look like?
0: Oh, that's a great question, Vignesh. I think I agree with everything that you said, except for being a prolific teacher. I don't agree with it. I'm not sure whether it's a prolific teaching, but yes, for sure, I'm a very passionate teacher. I, I love marketing and I wouldn't mind doing it 24 bar seven. I mean, who who cannot like marketing? I mean, that's my question. It deals with the human mind. So it's obviously something which is always, always interesting. Um, You know, if today, if the ma- marketing curriculum would be there, first of all it, it wouldn't be a marketing curriculum i think it will be it will be something which is uh, and why i say that is that this is something that is evolving right so i teach a subject called new age marketing and it has been deliberately called new age marketing what comes under it every year and every semester keeps changing because by definition it's new age so you can't have a new age marketing course which has got old age content in it uh, that that just does not it is an oxymoron so if I look at it, I think uh, w- what uh, what I would definitely add uh, to the existing body of knowledge knowledge which is already there, well established, and a lot of those criteria um, uh, hold good. A lot of new things that are predominantly with digital marketing, etc., have already come into the curriculum. It's it's not a new thing. It's been there for almost ten to twelve years in a serious manner. But what I would like to add is about tenacity, right? I think you know there is a there is a psychological aspect about about marketers which which I think needs to be there for every business leader. But I think a marketer needs to uh, need to needs to have it more than the others. And the reason I say that is, uh, you know the you know whatever are the changes that are happening in the market, I think it's the marketer's job to be able to sense that, right first and then get that knowledge back into the company and re-engineering, re-engineer the company itself uh, towards that goal. Uh, it's a very important aspect of marketing, which uh, what we used to call, you know, we used to do it by doing market research or getting information through the sales organization or other secondary ways of getting that information. Uh, I think marketer, marketing has to own. He, they have to be the voice of the consumer, right? So how do you really spot a trend how do you really spot a consumer need and build being able to build a business um, around it uh, is something which i think is uh, extremely crucial the second thing i think i would like to add is that uh, you know that uh, ability and that genuine genuine curiosity to learn about new technologies which are emerging because if you just see the the new techn- the technologies which have coming all of them have an impact on the on the marketplace it's not just the marketing software so here i'm not talking about uh, something which is very directly connected with marketing analytics those are a given i'm, I'm not even going there but i'm talking about technologies which are allied uh, to the area of marketing and how are they going to have a potential impact on the um, on the uh, on the market is is going to be very important the third thing i would like to say and probably the last one from my side we can go on and on but one one thing which comes to my mind is business modeling uh, ability to be in a very very agile manner how do you rebuild business model right we've all been through a recent experience which none of us want to ever uh, remember which is when covid happened right uh, it it took a while you know for companies to get to their new Uh, ways of doing that, that agility, if you see, was not the same across all organizations. It appeared like that. But when you actually knocked and checked, you know, how many companies have really re-engineered their uh, methods of marketing, uh, one could see that they were very different. So why did that happen? So why did marketers not change quickly enough? And those who did, why did they do it successfully as opposed to the others? I think was about their understanding of the business model itself because marketing is a subject which does not exist in isolation it's a part of a larger ecosystem so the ability to rethink the way the you know the business itself is run finding out new ways of generation of revenues uh, for the company thinking about partnerships where you can't do certain things and you know that's the typical synergy where you are partnering with somebody else to get more than what both of you can do individually i think these are areas that uh, i would like to it, like them to be a part of the uh, new marketing uh, you know paradigm as such um, if you permit me one more i would like to say the data driven operating model of marketing the ddom and as it's called i think it's very very essential for customer for marketers to have uh, i will not like to say that it's a new thing again it's been there for 5 years but i am afraid that you know many people especially at the marketing leadership level have sort of said that this is something that should be handled by somebody, uh, you know, the the new kid on the block in marketing, because it's something that, you know, I can get somebody else to do it. It's too important for the CMO to, uh, you know, outsource it or, um, you know, sort of uh, pass it down uh, the hierarchy. If the, somebody does not have that skill, uh, I think they should go back to their B school and, uh, uh, you know, relearn the skill. It's It's perfectly fine.
1: And also, like you said, a relationship, like you said, at the beginning of the conversation, it's a two way street, right? So on one hand, as a teacher, as a lecturer, you're supporting students and giving them the tools and some, you know, the principles and a general pathway on what it takes to be a well-rounded marketer. But at the same time, if I can ask you the other way of the two way street, which is what has being a lecturer actually taught you? Uh, and how have you applied those lessons both personally and professionally?
0: Yeah, there have been a lot, Vignesh. I think uh, when you teach, I think, I don't know how much my students learn, but I learn and at every stage. Because uh, number one, you have to prepare. You have to sit and prepare, uh, which gives you the opportunity to go back and present it, you know, get that ideal framework. Uh, you've got to go back and present, because you can't be presenting things which are hazy. So you got to get relearn, sometime learn new ways in which uh, some subject is being thought about. And when you actually, when when you're preparing like this one question, which comes to my mind very often, is that why don't I do it in my work? This framework is so good. I don't seem to have adopted it in my work. So how will it be? You know, those are forgotten lessons, if I may say. And uh, so I, I learn a lot when I'm preparing itself uh, for the class. Second thing I have learned is that when you're teaching at uh, the institutes today, a lot of information, 99% of what you are supposed to teach uh, that's coming from a textbook or some some known source is already known to students. Today, any content uh, that is there, uh, you know, is available on the net in some form or the other, right? So for them, they don't have to sit in your class to understand what uh, is a standard framework for example let me uh, take it you know a basic topic four piece of marketing they don't need to attend a class in the university to be able to understand what that is there are enough uh, ways in which they can do it but so therefore what is a value add that you are going to do as a teacher becomes important so when i teach this one as i said i shared is that i learn by introspecting whether i am doing it myself second thing is that when they are looking at it when my students hear a certain concept, they ask me questions because they are coming from a different point of view altogether. They're they are, they are born and they're being brought up in a different world, a world which is very, very fundamentally uh, different from mine. right? So the ability to, for example, the ability to use technology is coming much more naturally to, uh, to my students than it to me. Actually that should not be the case i should be the one who is telling them how to use technology but it's all many times it's the other way around when they say you know sir you talked about it and you talked say that there's a big challenge you know what there is a there is a simpler way to do it if you decide to automate it so uh, not that every time you know you hear something you can always go back and automate things you might have your own constraints but the fact is just looking at it from that point of view and saying that okay there are things that you know technology can solve and you use technology much more uh, in your work to get to 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 tackle all the business as usual uh, topics so that your time and your you know mental bandwidth is getting freed up for you to go and do something which is much more strategic uh, and something that needs your attention much more um, is something that i've always learned uh, and admired in my students uh, their ability to go on the net very easily, learn things, come back with questions, uh, come back with a counterpoint of view um, is, is very high. And uh, last thing quickly, if I may say, is I really appreciate how bold they are in, in a classroom, how they are, participative they are in, their, in the classroom, how agile they are. Because I, to be honest, I struggled to get onto an online, teaching marketing online, uh, because I am a person who likes to use the blackboard, left to right, top to bottom, jump around the class, go inside amongst the students, uh, use everything I have at my disposal, uh, you know, including my body language, my uh, you know, my sarcasm, humor, whatever, what, what you have, play ads. It's a it's a very noisy class that I teach, but um, I struggled initially to teach them that, but. I could not help but observe that they had adopted to it much faster uh, than I had. So it was like, yeah, if I have to teach these people, I have to be agile uh, myself. And see, okay, now I probably need to go back and learn how to present something online in an attractive manner, right? So that I'm still able to keep them engaged. Um, so going back to the drawing board and learning, um, anything I think I have um, learned a lot. Uh, From them,
2: so Sundar, uh, you are somebody who's transitioned from a CMO to CEO, right? And many times, uh, the roles, the responsibilities, and the goals are very, very different, right? Uh, So if you are sitting from a CEO shoes today, what do you expect a, a CMO to do? Okay. And if you are a CMO in the past, what did you expect your CEO to appreciate and understand? Can you kind of, you know, do that distinction? Because you are somebody who can do that distinction. And that's very critical for a CMO to understand and also for a CEO to understand.
0: Yeah, I think that's a very good question, uh, Swami. I was thinking about it, um, you know, um, you know, when I was when I so so let me come to the uh, first part, which is that you know as a CEO, what would I expect my CMO to do more, uh, and what to do differently? I think one is that I would definitely like my CMO to think more strategically than uh, what his functional uh, silos are permitting him to do that. Right? I I believe that CMOs are working towards uh, many. I I will not say everyone. There are exceptions and. And those have to be really commended for the way they have looked at and redefined their own roles, uh, even when there was no organizational mandate. They've just gone ahead and said, "This is what I'm going to do," and they've just gone and done it. Is about uh, being able to break the functional silos about what is marketing, what is sales, what is growth, and all the other you know allied areas that exist in an organization. Uh, the second thing I think I would like to uh, like that person to do is to think big. Uh, because I think, uh, you know, when, you know, we are all sometimes a victim of our past. So, you know, for example, you know, there is, a, let us say the growth of a product revenues has been going on for 5 to 6%. That is somehow enshrined in our memory that it can be only 5 to 6%. This is a conditioning which we, we all claim we don't have, but it is very much there. And how many times have we told, we have raised that you know past we have never done anything like this. I don't know how somebody can expect me to, you know, do something like uh, like this anymore, um, is uh, is quite surprising. And that sort of takes me back to a learning that I had when I was reading an article in Harvard Business Review a couple of years back. Is that the way our brain works? Is that we always try to build the future looking at past parameters. Uh, and we expect the future to be a very logical extension of the past whereas never never in history of mankind has any future been a logical extension of the of the uh, of the past. so th- there is a famous intel joke it is two eighty six three eighty six four eighty six and then there is a pentium and then what next? Uh, the everything in life is not this uh, arithmetic and it is not so. Uh, linear as well right we have seen from then on you might have named it for whatever reason in in that order but the the computing power itself jumped uh, several times to be able to uh, you know to, to keep pace with the 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 total amount of uh, you know the, the the load or the expectation that existed on an information system uh, you know um, uh, you know in uh, a business information system that existed. So I think, uh, uh, you know, I would expect my CMO to be much more strategic, be able to open through that silo and think through, okay, now tell me, how do I grow by 20%, right? If there is, uh, uh, you know, e- e- given that, you know, for example, we've been growing by 5 to 6%, does, is that mindset, the growth mindset, is it even existing? That's what I would like the my CMO to do. And now that... You know, I'm not in that position. I can I can give a lot of sermons. Um, and the other way around, if, you know, if I reflect back that when I was a CMO, um, uh, you know, what is that one thing that, you know, I would like uh, my uh, CEO to do is, um, you know, definitely, I think uh, to be able to count marketing as a strategic arm, right? In In many ways, what happens is it becomes a chicken and egg story should a function prove its metal and then people will uh, take it uh, you know lo- look at it as a strategic uh, uh, you know function or its the other way around that you know you 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 bestow that uh, kind of a uh, confidence or that kind of an importance to that function and that function somehow decides that they will have to scale up and deliver to that business so i will not get into that chicken and egg question but i would say definitely as a cmo If I, uh, you know, if the the times when I was looked at as a strategic leader in the company, uh, I think I have always been able to give more uh, to that role of CMO. And so has not only me, but, you know, the rest of my team also acted in that manner that, yes, we are very important. And so therefore we can't let the business down and we always have to keep performing to to our level. So these are, uh, you know, two seesaws, that i can think of
2: so uh, sundar i think uh, you hit upon a very uh, important point which is a cmo needs to think strategically uh, can you dive deeper and then say what is strategic right because it's a very very uh, you know very used to word right uh, you know so therefore what do you think is strategic and uh, what do ceos see as strategic
0: See, if you look at it, you know, the number one goal um, for the CEO always has been growth. Right. It is the growth. It's growth in revenues, growth in profit, growth in any parameter that, you know, holds good for that particular industry. Growth has been a very, very important um, aspect. And the other piece is trust. If you ask me, these are the two things that a a CEO has in his mind where he wants to, he should be taking these things and sort of building Uh, building on this so when I say uh, a CMO should be thinking uh, strategically uh, one which I just spoke about is finding out okay tell me what do I need to do where do I do I have a plan which is going to help me grow to X what do I have to do uh, to do that you know what is the plan that can be given removing all the self-imposed constraints right uh, many years ago, then let me share a very interesting, um, you know, anecdote which happened with a with a company that I was, uh, you know, I was a summer trainee, and I was uh, being interviewed by the board of the company for what we used to call as PPO. I don't know whether it still exists, the pre-placement offer that that was there, and uh, the, my summer project had had to do something with uh, the softy ice cream market. And uh, the company I worked for was a, was a market leader, uh, but they had not got into the softy you know, format. So they saw the potential. They asked me to do a national uh, uh, you know, market size estimation about what the size could be. And then of course, maybe subsequently decide whether it's attractive for them to get into that or not. Now, I brought up this thing you know, in the interview. They said, uh, is there anything that you have not liked in the way we work? You've been with us for two months. So is there something that you... Um, so I, um, uh, you can call it youthful exuberance or whatever. It just came out and it was a very honest opinion. Uh, I just said that, look, I don't think we are ambitious enough. Now, to be able to tell the board of directors that the company is not ambitious enough is a clear statement against them because it's the board of directors' job to make the company as ambitious as it should be. So uh, then they asked me, "Hey, you know what? You you know why? So why do you say that?" And there was a lot of, you could see the anger and uh, you know irritation at my comment. Uh, And they asked me, "Why do you say that? That is the case?" I said, "Look, we did. We are the market leaders, right? And uh, the softy market ice cream format is not something which is new. Why did we not get into that? And why were we waiting for some other smaller competitor?" to bring it to a scale where we feel that, you know, we should be, uh, you know, we we should be looking at that format. I mean, this is the ice cream business. You've got to be innovative and with any food business, it's it's very common. And that with the category like uh, ice cream, you've got to be innovative. And we never even thought about another format, which is as basic an innovation as you can think of. And so they said, look, you know, you know what, you're rubbish. You're two months. You've been with us. Don't you know that, you know, you got, uh, there are hygiene parameters. We don't sell ice cream without, uh, you know, which is of, which are below a certain standard of hygiene. How are you going to, you know, how, how is it that you are going to be uh, selling it in the softy format? And I think with the, with the same exuberance, I, I said, look, today you have seen the market and suddenly overnight, our research center has come up with an option by which this ice cream, which could which was not hygienic all these days, can be made hygienic. And we are delivering it in all our pilots that we were doing. We were delivering ice cream to that hygiene level. So therefore, when you see a market which is large enough, you always figure out the technology, the operations to be able to capture that opportunity. But being the market leader, should have we have waited for somebody else to teach us is a question that, that is there. I think. So, what coming back to your question, uh, Swami, I think strategic to me is one which is going to give us a significant increase uh, in our revenues and profitability. Something which could, which lasts from a time perspective, at least the next uh, two to three years, and something which you know, which we the company has to do at a fairly fundamental level to leapfrog. Uh, because the moment you think about making an annual plan for a company. You know, even before. So, how do we all make it? And you know, I believe that I'm with friends with you and your viewers later on. Uh, well, how do we all do it? We take the last year's Excel sheets and start building the plan on that. We never question those, you know, those assumptions. And where look at the market. And this is, you know, you can sense Philip Kotler's, uh, you know, frustration when he said that markets change much faster than market years i mean you mean to say in 12 months and that to the last 24 months of uh, of an eventful time nothing has changed in the market nothing is going to be done by competition uh, the, no technology which has uh, you know impacted your life uh, no change in demographics which have happened you know so all these things i think uh, you know leaving it aside i think the habit of coming back to your business if i may say you know just from a Uh, from a work rhythm perspective if a CMO can come every day to his work questioning a lot of the you know constraints which are trying to pull him down and his business down and think about a workaround saying how do we overcome these challenges oh I'm not good in entering China good so can we think about a partner so sometimes these decisions are parked for For someone else to take make the decision i'm a little disappointed when some of us and i'm no exception till very recently when i say when i hear CMO say business has to decide this you are the business what are you expecting someone else to be i mean you are marketing unless you know for some reason you think business marketing is not a part of business which is a bigger disappointment for me Uh, i think uh, one should say you know i'm taking the cudgels. And you tell me which company in its right frame of mind will not have a set of leaders going out there in the market, looking for new opportunities, committing that, okay, they will they will make a certain business plan work and, uh, um, you know, and, and and deliver the goods. No company in its right frame of mind will ever do it. Yeah, they may put some frameworks, they may put certain caveats and, you know, there may be some governance mechanism, which are all very, very fair. And uh, but I think uh, uh, the time has come for CMOs to start doing what they were doing very well earlier. But I think uh, over the years that that role has been sort of uh, submerged a little bit. So that's what I would say. If you can help uh, build that, you know, 30% growth for your uh, uh, for your CEO, and I'm just taking 30% as a very healthy growth. Now in another industry. Very, very healthy growth, maybe twelve percent, and in another comp, in another uh, you know startup kind of an environment, which is new, two hundred percent maybe healthy growth because it all depends on the base figure. But as you, i when I say thirty percent, it's more symbolic of a healthy growth. And say, look, this is the business I'm going to add with a complete P and L. Not again, come back and say I'm going to run these five marketing campaigns which will give me thirty percent. I'm giving you a business case. And marketing is a part of it, and I thought through everything, and this is how we should do it. I think the you know it's, it's that will be great. That's what I would call it strategic.
2: Fantastic, uh, fantastic points, sundar I think uh, you've touched another raw nerve. I would call it, which is you know thinking of marketing as a business. Now, I think that's a very important thing. Tell me, uh, but more more CMOs will keep on saying that you know I'm not responsible for the product. I'm not responsible for revenues because certain distribution, I'm not responsible for, you know, Uh, certain costs, I'm not responsible for. So therefore, then how do you uh, think I can be held responsible because I can only control the budget that you give me, which is the marketing budget. So I'll do more campaigns, I'll do more, uh, you know, branding work, uh, which then is the constraint that they put themselves around. How do they come out of something like that?
0: You know, I think uh, our life in the, you know has been made simpler by uh, first lesson that we got in marketing for me, which is there are marketing has four piece of marketing. So you by by you know take taking this position that you just mentioned, you're relinquishing four, three, three out of the four piece already, and then you can't say that look you gave me a four wheeler but I have made it a one wheeler now because I that's all I can do. I think it's some of this concern. I agree with you. This is a very a practical situation and uh, one has to, uh, you know, one has to contend with it. But I think that's what I'm saying. When when marketers start looking at, you know, their job as to be running a business and collaborate with the others. So, for example, if there's something that is, you know, holding us back because there is a certain distribution chain that is not working for us because of which whatever we do is getting suboptimal. So, for example, you're doing a lot of activation in a city or three cities. I'm just picking up some something like that, without there being a proper distribution there, right? Um, you've got to come back and say, hey, you know what? One of the two things is going to happen. One, I, I, if nobody is going to do anything there, I am not going to do any marketing there. So which means you've got to be very specific about what you want to do, right? I think the challenge with marketers is that many, many people do sort of communicate in qualitatives, that has to change. That's why I was emphasizing on the topic of the data-driven operating model for marketing. It's a zero-sum game. How much ever you like, if the, you touch one data, something else is going to get impacted. So, if you want to spend more on awareness, your uh, your propensity, of you your ability to influence purchase might come down, and you have to decide what you want. So, it's a in some sense in a given period of time it looks like a zero sum game that is there so if you are data driven and if you are business driven and look at all the aspects so for example you know uh, you you are uh, perennially suboptimal in the way you're giving retail margins for a, for a for a product the product is not going to work and you've got to bring it out rather than keep on saying that look look at my top of the funnel parameters they are so beautiful my tofu is 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 great but you know my bottom line is you know is not happening it, it is very common this is very common because marketers define their own metrics measure their own metrics they present to themselves and they are feeling very happy about it market the ceo the cfo of the company does not understand any of these metrics right which are you know marketers best kept secrets right now what one of the things which I have learned and uh, I can't say I always uh, succeeded it, but always have the CFO on your side. Because every board definitely has the CFO on it, even though there may be a situation when the CEO of the company is not on the board. the C, There is no way. I mean, CFO may not be on the board, but he's a special invitee to every board meeting. Why is this? Because anything that they discuss, anything they touch, any decision that's making, direct impact on the top line and bottom line of the company. And nobody in their right senses will ever want to leave the CFO of that. Now, if the marketer is able to convince the CFO about a certain business case where the opportunities are better because they're inter- they, they interact more, they understand their businesses, each other. And if he can make his metrics, the marketing metrics, Talk to the financial metrics, you're done, right? Because everybody is going to hear your business case. Give one look at the CFO. And if the CFO is saying, yes, I'm supporting it. I know exactly what this guy is saying. Your job is half done. Don't spring a surprise on everybody, including the CFO, when you're presenting a business case. Then people will find enough ways of shooting it down or asking for rework to be done or whatever that is the case. I think that's that's a very important and very practical tip I can think of. In fact, in one of my earlier companies that I used to work for, uh, I was invited by a B school to say, can you present something on marketing? And I said, see, you've heard enough about marketing and all that. There are many videos of mine available. Why don't you invite me and my CFO? Who, by the way, many people think are foreign enemies in an organization. Uh, why don't we, you get both of us, right? and see how we actually interact with each other and what is it that the CFO expects from me, I will also attend what I expect from the CFO in, in return. If you can have that two-way dialogue, it is going to and establish a form of trust. Then I think, you know, uh, it, it's going to be a different rhythm. Great points,
2: Sundar. Great points. I think uh, uh, there's this big joke uh, that... Uh, that's always the which is when you appoint a new CMO, the CFO always expects a big budget to come his way, right? So therefore, but what you are really saying is look at the business case, look at the business problem, uh, make marketing, m em- being embedded in the business. Uh, I think that's a that's a that's a great uh, that's a great point. Uh, I just want to shift our conversation, Sundar, to uh, something that you have been doing for many years now, which is. You have been on the tech side of the business and there are so many, uh, you know, tech companies that build marketing software. Uh, It's almost the creator economy, as you would call it, is completely built uh, with this kind of software uh, where creative itself has become a commodity, right? So, therefore, uh, what you thought was uh, extremely, uh, you know, uh, differentiated at one point in time, the software has made it a commodity. Right. So therefore, how do you really now differentiate uh, one of the arsenals of a marketer or a CMO? Okay, where creative itself has become a commodity and actually software and technology has made it a commodity. So how do you really, therefore, uh, you know, uh, bring about this change and uh, add an application on top of software to differentiate and build value for a brand?
0: Yeah, so I think a very good point, uh, Swami. It is uh, uh, it is something which many people ask, saying that you know when you when you use a marketing software, it could let okay let's sort of for the moment uh, restrict our discussion to design software, right? Which is there, which is used to making uh, creatives of many types. Now the fact is, these create these this technology is available to every marketer, but yet you see that there are brands, there are people who stand out now if you are finding that the messaging and the you know the, the quality of creative is becoming increasingly common which is what you probably mean that it's getting commoditized right because there is no differentiation so it's become a commodity right it's because people are you know very consciously trying to benchmark against others and trying to be like the others right one one thing that i learned very early in my career is if you want real creativity to come from a team never be prescriptive about what you want we often mistake a creative brief for example to uh, to mean something that you actually go and start drawing on the whiteboard in front of a designer what you want if you draw if you are the marketing head and you walk across and uh, you know you say that look i want a design which looks like this Take my word, it will be a replica of what you just drew. Your idea was to give them an idea about what are how it should possibly look like. But that person says, what's the easiest way for that person? He he would have he would think that if I'd got a creative brief, I would have designed it in a very different way. But this person is telling me what I should do, so I've just done that. So it's like a common minimum program, like you know, our LCM, least common multiple that we studied. It will never be the HCF, where from a marketer's perspective, he should always be, number one, restricting himself to the insight that he would like to draw. That's where I'm coming to where the differentiation in the creative will start. It will start at the base, which is what's the insight that you have drawn from a consumer, which again, you know, you want it to manifest in your creative and so on. Second thing is, uh, it's important to these tools and technologies are available to everybody but i think the person who understands this insight the best and is able to come up with multiple alternatives for this and present it will be the person who will probably be best suited for um uh you know for um uh, for bringing that differentiation in terms of design so it will not get commoditized Right? I mean, you, you just take movies, for example. I'm taking example of movies because everybody has an equal view of all of that. Now, the same software is used to make uh, an Oscar-winning movie and uh, another movie which uh, is probably a very mediocre movie. The software is the same. It has not commoditized, uh, for example, storytelling. It has not commoditized uh, the way in which an insight is converted into uh, into a message. It has not, uh, you know, it has not um, um, stopped from people from saying, okay, how do I carry the same insight and the same message across multiple channels? So th- this is where, you know, creativity, there is, there is ample scope for a person to create things which are very different. Now, if you, what could potentially be causing, this is not access to the technology. I think what is happening is that, in the rigmarole that we all sometimes fall a trap to and that ability to kill, let's get something done quickly. That quick and dirty earlier was meant to be the first version, but now the final version has to be quick and dirty is a a very uh, you know, is a very uh, is very detrimental to the brand for, to put it very mildly. So you want something to be done quickly, you want to get something out, you have to invest time in it. There, there is uh, no doubt about it. And it has to be viewed from multiple, uh, you know, angles and perspectives. How will my potential customer look at it? How will my, uh, you know, um, how does it sort of marry to the insight that I want to talk about? How will, you know, how does it differentiate itself uh, with the other, you know, messaging I'm giving? Do I have an opportunity to take this to, uh, to a whole new level? Uh, you know, I'm um, you know I'm a big fan of paper boat, for example. You know, look at it. You you just talked about commodity, right? What can be more commodity commoditized in summer in India than fruit juice, right? And it's available for anywhere between ten rupees a glass to two thousand five hundred rupees uh, a jar in a in a five star hotel. But they took it is a commodity. It's very much uh, competing with them from a product perspective. Took a very different route took a route of uh, packaging, uh, took the took the route of pricing it in a unique way, making it available in a certain way, giving a very emotional narrative to a commodity. Uh, I always say that, you know, whenever a brand has to be launched, it has to be launched on a very functional parameter. You can't take an emotional route, but the exception to this is boot, which they launched on an emotional part, thinking about it's as commoditized as salt, in my opinion. But I think they've fought that very well and uh, come back. Technology will only help you get this to life in terms of how it is.
1: So I think uh, moving from sort of monoliths to individuals, I think uh, we just touched upon the creator economy. And I just wanted to know that, you know, uh, I think we are having multiple technological tools, like you said, which have come into play, like like your uh, no-code tools and your marketing stacks and your know, playbooks and other it's almost like a strategy stack has been built for any individual person to basically go online set something up ship it you have social media to promote it so when you have a thriving when you have so much of energy towards the creator economy movement uh you know what are some fundamental principles of marketing that you know a creator an individual needs to keep in mind as they're trying to grow their product or service in today's economy
0: very good question, Vignesh. Again, it's a, it's a, you know, one has to definitely try and break break that clutter, because it is it is almost looking like that playbook that you refer to is something which is available on the net, and everybody seems to be, you know, t- t- tends to, uh, you know, just replicate and say, okay, this, these guys have done it, so let me do it like this. I wouldn't like to take the names of the brands because, uh, to be honest, I don't know the sufficient inside story of those brands. And that's why I don't have the permission to use their name. So I wouldn't, but two brands, you know, which are from the same industry have taken very, very different routes uh, to, you know, to, to, or what appears to be different routes, but ended up, you know, with the same result sometimes and different results sometimes. So when, when, you know, uh, coming back to your question, when you're looking at uh, building anything, that's there in marketing. Well, number one, and we've been told enough number of times is that I think it needs to be clear on who is the target audience and what is the consumer insight which is driving me towards, you know, communicating that business, right? I can give you two examples, very well-known examples of Nike as well as uh, Starbucks, right? So the founder, is the custodian of that knowledge in these two companies and they were driven by that insight about how they will grow, how they will improvise, how they will innovate and so on. The moment they lost sight of that insight, no matter what they did, their marketing mix stopped working. So that's a a danger signal for, for any marketer. If you don't know what is that basic consumer insight on which you're founding your entire business you are bound to lose track and you know you may design the best campaigns but they will not work because they're not based on uh, you know based on a certain insight that you have so first thing is whatever you do check 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 100 times whether it is answering to that particular insight uh, or not right second thing is don't get lost with technology be very clear what you want technology to do right otherwise you're bound to get confused bound to be bombarded by lots of types of platforms technologies which can which will all obviously promise you a lot of things but is that what you really want to achieve is that what you really want to get at is something that you know i think you have to make an assessment for yourself so if and that clarity will get if you have a clear consumer insight about what you want to sort of uh, uh, take it forward so I think uh, it is yes I think we are seeing a massive increase in the um, in different softwares available across the stack as you as you rightly said uh, but it's it's a like a good marketer decides what to take in and what not to take in I think uh, the decision has to be made by the marketer what's going to help him achieve his strategic goal so there is an insight and there is a goal how do you move from a point a to point b and what all do you need right i keep telling you know even when people are investing in digital uh, you know marketing uh, in my even in my classes and this is what i share with my team is that just because there are 20 boxes you don't have to tick all 20 boxes if you got 100 rupees you can decide which channels which formats, which technology you can you want to in, in, invest. And it's fine to say no. Great brands, what are they known for? They are known for knowing how to say no. Right, a Mercedes Benz, never says ghar mein Mercedes Benz. That is not what they want. I'm, I'm, I know I'm giving a exaggerated example just to make a point. But as a brand, you should be clear that no, this is not what I want to do. So I think you just it's 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 about uh, deciding what are your priorities. So if you, as they say, if you have a hammer in your hand, everything looks like a tool, uh, everything looks like a nail, because you 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 have already made up your mind to use a tool. Because why? Because somebody else has used it. And the other thing, if I may say quickly, add is, you know, keep some money in your back pocket in from your marketing budget to be able to do these low uh, intensity marketing experiments. So you don't know, for example, how a tool works. I think you should be fine to, you know, invest a little bit of money, just giving it like a spin to see what, what it can do for you. Suppose someone comes and says, I'll help you with social media listening tool. I have something good, great. If you're convinced that's the way to do it, go ahead and do it. But then what are you expecting out of it? And you know investing a small amount is fine but whatever you do today's world vignesh it's very important that these have to finally talk to the metrics that you have set marketing is not today about printing brochures and making ads and getting tv spots and uh, you know running a clever campaign and people will give you a big pat on the back for having done all this of course these are core marketing functions but they come uh, with a lot of accountability about how those resources that have been uh, allocated how do they justify business so even before you do any of these things let's say you're talking you're evaluating an analytics tool what are you expecting out of it and what's the business outcome that's going to be there if you're not able to set those goals then you're taking a big risk in that investment you may get it wrong, it's okay as I said, it's only 5% of your budget, which is not going to burn you. And if you don't do these experiments, you may never learn. So uh, you've got to balance those two things.
2: So Sundar, uh, I also know uh, you are somebody who likes music. And uh, so when did you start uh, learning music? Where did this interest, you know, get, uh, you know, get a spark from? And uh, what really prompted you from, uh, you know, jumping from, you know, uh, somebody who appreciates music to somebody who practices music and how does this help in your professional life?
0: Yeah, for me, actually, that's a little tough question because I really don't know when I got interested. I think from a very young age, uh, there was music all around me. Um, In our house too, there was a lot of music. Uh, my mother used to sing, uh, you know, classical, semi-classical uh, film music uh, a lot. And my uncle used to be, you know, playing a lot of music in the night, uh, which is, uh, uh, you know, from uh, Ceylon Station, as we used, we used to call it, and sanai Varnin in Alayam. That's where we heard the word sanai for the first time. Uh, there was a lot of music, which used to start from 9 o'clock in the night all the way up to, you know, 11, 11, 15. Uh, till the concert used to be over I used to be listening to a lot of music uh, since I was a child Um, and from then on I think uh, there has been a strong urge to learn music but um, unfortunately uh, you know I uh, started twice and I had to give it up because my father was in a transferable job as I mentioned there was a lot of plus uh, in that uh, kind of a lifestyle but it brought too many interruptions and We were in areas where there was absolutely no access to somebody teaching music and all that. So I'd give it, I gave it up twice. But I think uh, once what happened was I was listening to uh, a concert, a live concert with some of my cousins. I I was about 31, 32 years of age. And, uh, you know, the singer at that time, he just, you know, went on to a higher octave. I don't know what happened at that moment. I just said... Look for me I think this is very, very intrinsic to me. This is too fundamental for me to even sit and evaluate how far I will go with music. I don't think I've ever sat and evaluated that if I sit and you know learn, you know, what level can I play to? Just learning itself was a is a big thing for me. And that very minute I turned towards my cousin who was sitting next to me and I told her you need to take me to the teacher who was who uh, taught me for 14 long years. I learned the Veena from uh, Dr. Rama Parthasarathy. Unfortunately, she passed passed away three years back. Um, so um, to me, I think, uh, you know, the construct of that music was very important. So when when, when I would hear a classical uh, Raga, I, I predominantly learned the Carnatic uh, style of music. And uh, when there would be a certain formation, I would say, why does... This formation of uh, notes. Why does it create this kind of a feeling in me? Uh, with strong feelings in me. So uh, that is how you know I started learning, and then I could match that. Okay, it is these uh, you know string of uh, uh, notes which are actually producing this kind of an emotion in me. it was more like a mixing and matching. And I really love, loved the construct of every kriti that was composed by the great masters. Um, and uh, I think uh, learning music, I think one, one aspect, uh, two, two, two things I would say that as a marketer, I always use, uh, I always look at music as a big tool. Uh, you can change the mood in, in, a, in a setting in, in two minutes by changing the music. You would have seen this when you go to a mall on a, on a Sunday night, you know, eight o'clock, they're about to close. They, pay, placed, uh, they usually play very fast paced music for people to just buy quickly whatever they want and get out because it's already 8 o'clock and it's coming to closing time. Whereas on a Tuesday afternoon at uh, 2.30, there'll be very, very few people in the mall. So you might want them to stay as long as you want them because then they'll likely to buy more. This is a very, I mean, very salesman use of uh, music as a tool. But the big impact music I think has on all of us, uh, we may not be even aware of this. I'm aware of it because I've been more conscious about it. But even a small child, uh, when you play the wrong note, uh, you know, it's got a scorn on its face, uh, saying that the music is in all of us, I guess. And um, the second application for me personally um, has been that fact that, you know, uh, whenever there's been a stressful day or I need to change my mood, um, I think, uh, you know, it comes in, very very handy i remember you know one incident which happened in palo alto uh, you know I'd, i was there with my leadership in uh, one of the companies i used to work for sap and suddenly haso platner the founder of the company um, you know just came and sat in front of me and uh, he and he, all of us were sitting and he said okay what do you think sap should do differently i mean we were all very innocently we had gone there to work on something else and suddenly the founder of the company is standing in, sitting in front of us and what should SAP do? You've got to be very, uh, you know, it obviously created a lot of anxiety. But you will not believe this for me. It was a blank for me. That entire meeting, I could able I was able to sort of relax by letting one Raga, suddenly from nowhere, that Raga started playing in my mind. And all I remember of that of that meeting was that Raga that was playing in my mind. I, I hope I made some sense to Hasso Platner because I, when I went back and checked uh, uh, the payroll of the company, I was still on the payrolls of the company, uh, which meant that I was still around. But what uh, it gave me was, um, uh, maybe it was like a, what shall I say, it's like a immunity that it gave me from that stressful uh, uh, situation. So you play Nalina Kanti for two minutes, I think anything can, it can totally take you to a different uh, world. And see that, and other thing is, you know, We, in our minds, we think about North Indian music, uh, music from the South, music from the East, folk music, and so many other types. Uh, The more, you know, you you travel across India, especially, you'll find that the music actually becomes more and more similar. You know, uh, I've heard uh, people playing some very, very, um, you know, ragas, which I thought were very, very, very typical to Carnatic music. But they were playing it in the folk style. In in some, some boy sitting on a tree in Bihar was actually playing that near my house. And I couldn't help come out and say, what is this fellow? Uh, you know, what is this guy playing here of all the places where I never expected that that raga will be uh, played. Some ragas we are all familiar, right? They are all common between uh, they are pan-India. But even in that, uh, it is there. So uh, you don't need to really put any filters, I think. It's, it's a boon. If you can really enjoy music, as they say, it's anytime, anywhere. So Sundar,
1: given the fact that you are, your joy of music, your understanding, your your reliance on it to a certain extent, uh, has, a, has an edge of a, you know, serious uh, self-learner, like somebody who's really interested in learning to understand things at a deeper level, connect to things at a deeper level, leverage those experiences to make, Uh, different decisions think different about problems and solutions etc so being somebody like that a question that I have for you is you know what advice would you give to young graduates who are coming out of the hallowed marketing departments in the country about what are some of the harsh realities that they have to deal with once they leave the confines of the safe and uh, trusted classroom
0: yeah. So first thing I would like to, I, and I always say that that in real life in business, right? Nobody ever gives you a 15-page case study with all the you know tables from page number 12, 13, 14, and 15, which as a student you will of course ignore because you will not find, you will not have even got to those pages to solve these cases, and uh, you know on top it is written as marketing case study, right? Uh, and because it has been discussed in a marketing uh, class you assume it's got something to do with marketing right and the problem statement is why is the revenues of the company not going up now how do you know it's not a motivational issue it's got nothing to do with marketing it is actually an hr case study right so first thing is that silos that exist uh, because again in a, in a b school you've got to teach you can't be hazy there saying okay today i don't know what i'm going to teach you and let me teach you something which comes to my mind um uh, so first of all things are not this black and white um in that are there uh, you know in 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 business there is ample anxiety and am, ankle ambiguity i would say not anxiety sorry i meant ambiguity and you got to be get, you have to be very comfortable with that ambiguity right the second thing is you know if you look at the typical b school curriculum all the subjects which have got some word called strategic will all be in the you know fifth and the sixth term so when the, when, when somebody graduates from there they will be under the impression that probably you know they will handle something very very strategic whatever that means right and uh, you know first day they get into the tatas they're going to say okay i'm going to meet and say ratan this is what you should do right? But the fact is, uh, their immediate opportunities are not likely to be in that area, right? Their first few years, you know, maybe one, two, three, four, five years, uh, their uh, their assignments will be more towards working in, in, for example, being a sales head or being a brand manager or being a, you know, a finance operations person or something like that for the first five years. Now, this is a tricky situation because, what happens is many graduates who come they feel a little frustrated at not being given the strategic arm they don't realize you know that you know if they were to be made a brand manager on day 1 of their joining a company and they are made the brand manager for surf imagine what's going to happen the number of things that they handled are tremendous they are not aware of this to be honest i mean in 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 uh, on naiwite they may be thinking that way so what happens in the first five years, because they don't get anything strategic, they start to believe that a lot of things that they studied in B school is actually not useful, right? And they say, okay, you know, work is different, studies are different. I am not a believer of that. A company has hired a student from an MBA college to be the future leader. Now their immediate assignments are meant to give them a flair of the business. But they after five years, when they're really required to get those strategic skills out by the time they have actually given up on those skills. So it's that intellectual preservation, if I may say of sorts, that you need to do for the first five or six years to ensure that you still have an analytical mind, uh, a strategic thinking mind, irrespective of what your immediate job role is and keep all those frameworks and uh, you know uh, concepts very clear. Because when you grow into leadership, positions and organization it is that conceptual quality which is going to help you in those roles but if you have become too tactical by then you will have forgotten those things and not be able to apply this is my you know practical study of students including myself and how i sort of also thought when that was the case so the reality is the business world is is has a lot more ambiguity than what exists in uh, uh, in in academic uh, environments uh, number 2 i think uh, uh, y- your work will always be you know uh, uh, a mixture of technical things and strategic things different things getting amplified on different um, uh, in different t- t- times in your career and also for a, for a, for all you know even during a single day you will have to yo-yo between a lot of things right you you have two customer meetings one person one one meeting is a customer escalation. It's a very tactical thing that you need to go fix it. There you're a fixer. you know you're ready with a screwdriver, you're gonna go forward, fix it. That mode is very different. Next minute um you know you're you're in a situation where you're supposed to have a strategic conversation with a uh, with a CEO of a company that's that's a very different uh conversation that you have to have. so that dexterity you have to. Create. You can't say, "Oh no, no, this is not my job. I'm an MBA. I will not do these tactical things." Uh, You know, I don't want to use that word, but a lot of people say the way they said. Everybody has a shit content in their job, and uh, one has to do it. It's it's a part of the job. It's a part of the learning experience. But the people who intellectually preserve themselves, conceptually preserve themselves for uh, strategic roles are the people who are going to. Uh, I think get those roles and uh, be successful in them.
2: Thanks Sundar. Uh, we're coming to some closing questions and uh, uh, I want to start off with asking you a first question. What does the word successful mean to you?
0: I think um, being happy, right? And uh, with whatever one has done and um, a good night's sleep. I think that's being successful. Because I think a person who's got the right conscience uh, will, will be able to sleep he, when he knows he's given it 100%. So that's success to me, Swami.
1: Sundar, my next question to you is, what are some of the books uh, that have influenced you the most over the course of your life and career?
0: Yeah, thanks. You asked that question. You got someone right next to you who recommended one of those books. And since then I've um, become very famous recommending those that book to everyone. Uh, one book which I really like and thanks to Swami for having recommended it is uh, God, the the, the God, the Country and Coca-Cola uh, by Mark uh, Pendergast. I think it's a beautiful book. Um, it's a long one. That's the only challenge. But I think it's a beautiful book which talks about how, you know, business has evolved, how a brand has evolved. And uh, it, since it's about Coca-Cola, I think everybody can relate to it that's a great book that uh, i always uh, uh, sort of um, recommend to people uh, the second one i would um, uh, say is uh, the bo- the book onward on starbucks i think it's, it's a great narration about how it, how a com- business is always built on consumer insights and when you lose track of that insight what happens and then you sort of uh, struggle a little bit and the third one uh, was is a book called The Leadership Pipeline by Ram Charan. Um, he, uh, unfortunately, I think that book has not got the visibility that it should have, but it's got a very simple construct where uh, uh, Ram Charan talks about six curves that, you know, turns that a person will have to make as he climbs in the corporate ladder. So imagine you're going on a hill and on a car, you go around like this. We have to make a turn, you know, every time. And failing to make the turn, you know, what, what what's going to happen. So he's divided the career into six stages and very beautifully plotted what are the turns that people have to make. So uh, all the way from a you know junior executive to the enterprise leader, who you may call it a business unit head or a CEO of a company, or a managing director whatever you, however you would like to know it very practical book uh, these are three of my uh, favorites that i would recommend so
2: sundar uh, given your long career and uh, you've had many heroes across uh, you know many of the categories in the companies that you worked so if you were given a chance to invite four guests for your dream dinner who would they be and why?
0: Okay. Um, one, of course, uh, I would definitely, if given a choice, I would definitely invite God to be one of them because I really want to know how he is and how he looks like. Um, the second thing is, uh, um, second person I would love to uh, interact and get to know much more of, a uh, person I admire along, is the former chairman of Hindustan Levers, uh, Vindi Banga. I, I have a great admiration for him as a Um, As a business leader, I think I will have uh, um, someone whom um, I would love to learn uh, a lot. Uh, The third person, I think, uh, is Lata Mangeshkar. I think a person whom I think the whole world admires, and I'm no exception, uh, because I really want to check whether that person existed in reality or not. I still don't believe that such a person never existed. It's all a myth uh, that is there. So somebody will have to prove that Lata Mangeshkar really existed. But I think I have taken a lot of lessons from her own life and uh, and uh, her music itself. You know, for some things, you don't need an introduction, right? Uh, you, For example, somebody who can sing like that uh, or, you know, for example, it's a dumb thing to say, you know, Roger Federer works hard. Mm. What do you expect, right? So you, some things don't need any explanation. Right, uh, I think uh, when you look at a rose it, it's just so beautiful does anybody have to tell us see how beautiful it is maybe if somebody has to tell it maybe it isn't uh, and that's there and uh, the last person I think I would like to uh, definitely invite is Charles Chaplin uh, someone whom I'm a great admirer of and uh, you know about the whole art of storytelling and making people laugh uh, for years I mean for for a century he's made People laugh, uh, and and all of us know humor is the most difficult genre to treat. So, I think these four people would be good to have on the dining table. Only thing for me, if these people are there, there's no eating that's going to happen from me. So, I am going to hung, be hungry, and then after the dinner is over, step outside the house to have a vada pav, uh, you know, on Juhu Beach.
1: So my my next question to you, Sundar, is what would be the advice that what would be the three to four piece of advice that you would give an 18 year old entering university today?
0: Yeah, I think uh, the first advice or I can't call it an advice. I don't know how capable I am of giving any advice. But one thing I would definitely like to share is that uh, I went to university only once. I did my engineering and then after a few years I did my MBA and that was the end of my formal education. I think the first thing he's got to be prepared is that this will be this will be his first, but definitely not the last time he's going to enter university. He will enter a different university once again, at least once more in his career, because I think the need to re-engineer himself uh, is, is going to be there and he will have to be learning much, much more than what people of the past did. There's just too much happening, you know, to... You know, stay away. So, more opportunities for formal education and lots of opportunity for continuous informal learning uh, that will um, that that is going to happen uh, in his or her career. Second thing is, I think uh, I would really like them to st- focus on the basics. I think today, the you know, the moment uh, you know, for example. Uh, when I when I, for example, I start teaching and they, they hear that I'm coming from so-and-so company, the immediate default mode is, okay, you're going to tell us something about digital marketing. Right? But my subject is called uh, integrated marketing communication. I didn't use the word digital anywhere. It may be an expectation that since I'm coming from that company, I will probably accentuate that part more, which I do. But definitely I think to keep an open mind about what it is and learning the basics of that subject without jumping and coming to pre-conclusions about what it is uh, are the two things that i'm going to definitely say third thing I'm, i'm i will also say that i think start building a good professional network right start now don't start you know when you're 45 and you know one of the unstated kpis for any professional is what is the professional network he has. And this is not told in any B-school. There is no, uh, you know, course which says networking, art and science of networking. There is no such thing. Um, There are a lot of interesting articles though, and people have seen the value. So one can learn from them, uh, but it is something that one has to do very naturally. If you're going to a new city, don't sit at home and don't sit in your hotel room alone and have your dinner. You can as well spend it with somebody from another industry i think what is important is to learn uh, from another industry not just from your place but also learn from from other sources also learn and hear people who are very different from the way you are you may be in for many many surprises like for example i learned that about music like since we talked about it that there are other forms of music which are equally melodious and which are which can capture our mind very different uh, I had the opportunity to meet uh, M.S. vulakshmi once, uh, the famous um, uh, Carnatic singer. And I went into her, her house and somebody was trying to play uh, 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 an African you know, beat in front of a percussion instrument that he had recorded in Africa. And it was being played in front of her. And you should have seen the delight with which she was enjoying it. Imagine how different Carnatic music and You know, African percussion instrument can be. But she saw something in that, you know, that fervor which was there. So I think we can all learn from other sources. So don't be with people who are exactly like you since you're getting into a new college. Try to network with people who are very different from you, from whom you can learn. It's not easy because we all have our comfort zones. So if we can find another clone of ourselves, we feel very happy. And I've heard a lot of managers say this. I heard that person because he's exactly things like me. I said, good. Wasted talent. Two people in the meeting are going to sit and you're going to tell and that fellow is going to listen. Might not as well have, actually. So, I think uh, these are three things that I would say in addition to, of course, the lovely learnings that they're going to get out of that institution. Sundar,
2: my next question would be what is the best piece of advice uh, anyone has ever given you?
0: I think uh, it was given by the chairman of uh, Unilever the first day I joined. For me, I joined in Bangalore, and that was the last day on which uh, Keki Dadi Seth uh, was uh, going to be the chairman of uh, Hindustan Levers, as it was called, and he was moving to a global role. He flew down all the way from Bombay to Bangalore just for a few hours to meet and welcome the future leadership of the company. I asked him if there's a you know advice he would like to give me. What would it be? And he said that I think winning the battle in one's mind before winning it in the marketplace is very important. In the the mindset that is required, you've got to play that game clearly in your mind. Saying, look, this is what's going to happen. This is my plan, and this is how I things will pan out. And these are the challenges I'm going to face. Right, because the world is not waiting for you to come and roll out the plan. The world has its own plans. So, what will you do if those plans are at loggerheads with what you see in the ground? How will you overcome and play that entire thing to that level of detail? Right, is very is going to be very important. I think that's a very valuable piece of advice anybody has given me.
1: Wow. Okay. Uh, my next question to you is. Uh... What is one thing that you believe in, Sundar, that nobody else agrees with you on?
0: Uh, I I don't think there is anything where people uh, don't agree with me for. Uh, Sometimes I have a challenge uh, uh, explaining to people why I want to move at a certain pace. Uh, Sometimes, and, uh, you know, I think I want to go faster. Uh, If it's clear in my mind, I'd like to move i don't like to sit and uh, intellectualize on things which are clear to me but uh, to be fair uh, you know you are a part of a team always right and uh, other people may not be as convinced as you are or they may not be able to see what what you are seeing because you are in the market so i sometimes have a challenge explaining about how quickly i would like to get something done i get little you know, thrown off the track if people don't immediately agree that yeah, 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 this is the way to go. Yeah.
2: So uh, my last question, Sundar, Sundar, so my last question, Sundar, is uh, uh, who's the guest you would like to see featured in Contraminds?
0: Oh, yes. I mean, there are lots for me. I mean, yeah, definitely. I think uh, love to hear from uh, Pallavi Singh. Uh, she's a former uh, CMO of, uh, of um, um, BMW in India. She was at MG Motors for a long time and she's done some excellent work in terms of segmenting uh, the market for MG Motors um, uh, on, on, the, on the basis of a psychographic segmentation. So that, that was very interesting for me to hear her. I've had the opportunity to listen to her a few times. Uh, but every time I hear it, I get a new perspective. I think uh, you should uh, definitely do that. And, uh, you know, also, I think uh, what would be interesting is getting people from who are managing brands, which are icons, right? So, for example, uh, you know, the, 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 uh, the person who is actually, I don't know who that individual is, but uh, somebody who runs Jama Masjid, for instance, it's an icon by itself and it's, it's an organization which is, which is there so how will how do, what do they do what what is their business philosophy uh, what is their uh, communication strategy how do they communicate uh, to people for, for learning from a totally different uh, uh, you know environment uh, that is there and um, last but not the least you should invite uh, one of the guys who runs a lovely book stall near fountain in mumbai and I'll tell you why. Uh, I, I I was buying a book there once and the mom, young boy, eight, eight year old, the moment I picked up a book, he brought five other books and said, if you like this, you will also like these books. So I said, yeah, but how do you know this? He said, uh, see, I've got you five books. Three of them are by the same author. So if you like one author, it's quite natural. You will like other books written by the same author. And the other two are thrillers, crime thrillers, which are in the same genre as this book. I said, fantastic height of personalization, height of recommendation engine. This this happened 22 years back, uh, Swami and Vignesh. You can imagine how uh, all this was, there was no technical. But the shocker came after this, The the kid does not know how to read. and he's selling books and he's getting you books exactly the way you want it in fact all those five books I, I were not were not none of those books were something that i could have said no i'm not interested i think that passion to read a consumer's mind you know is something i learned from them so you know i don't i don't know whether that boy still exists around in that format but just those people who are on the street who bring so much of learning uh, into the way business is done I think, uh, you know, it'd be great to learn from uh, those people who are on contrarian uh, perspectives and uh, how how sort of marketing is done. And of course, I think I'll be very keen to hear from emerging brands coming from Africa, because I think that's one black box for me and uh, many people, I guess, but I, it's, it's a definite black box. Like China was a black box for many people, you know, 20 years back when we all started off on a business. In many ways, it, it still is. I don't think I know enough about the market, about a very fascinating market. So uh, while we do that, I think learning about Africa and uh, because people throw these uh, Googlies at me from about that market. It'll be good to know what, what's happening there and learn from the way African marketers are uh, marketing in Africa.
2: Thanks, Sundar. Uh, it was a thoroughly fascinating conversation. I think uh, the width and depth of what you have gone through in your professional life uh, the deep sense of uh, you know uh, i would say uh, commitment and the way you saw it and the way you explained it and the way you had uh, you know your thoughts on it and some of the advice uh, that uh, you gave uh, were extremely authentic and uh, as they say authentic brands really last a lifetime and I'm sure that's something that you've learned and you've perfected the that seems to be coming out in this conversation. Thanks a lot and lovely having a conversation with you.
0: Thanks uh, Swami and thanks Vignesh. I think when you talk about authenticity, my uh, business leader I personally admire a lot is yourself Swami. Uh, I think uh, you stand for the trust um, you know earlier when um, we used to work um, as our agency in our company and since then if there is somebody whom you can always go to for a very well grounded well-rounded uh, you know advice uh, it will always be for me for, for not just me I've heard that from from many people so thanks for having me on this uh, show and I hope your viewers uh, get something out of it and I'm very very keen to hear the Episodes. I've had the opportunity to listen to a few, but will now be a regular listener to the subsequent editions. Thank you so much.
2: Thanks for listening to this episode. For selected links and detailed show notes, visit www.contraminds.com/blog. Follow Contraminds on social media, and let us know who you would like to see next on the podcast. If you are listening to ContraMinds on Apple Podcasts, do share your comments and give us a rating. We are keen to know what you are thinking. ContraMinds is also on YouTube. If you are listening to the podcast on YouTube, hit the subscribe button and stay up to date on all our releases. Thanks for listening and stay safe.